Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Joining me this morning, we have Winston DeMello. Winston is an anaesthetist and an intensive care consultant. His history, he's been in the Royal Army Medical Corps for, I think, 37 years, if my math is correct. He was a founding member of the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care at the Royal College of Surgeons, and he's on the Faculty of the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine based in Malta. And relevant today, he's the chair of the pre-hospital specialist interest group in the British Burns Association. Winston, thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat to us. You're welcome, David. It's a pleasure to do something for Scotland. I've had plenty of good memories serving as the regimental medical officer in Edinburgh. So you're going to chat to us today about burns and about the management of burns in the pre-hospital environment. And I guess we probably ought to start off by looking at, at the scale of the problem. Burns are not something that we come across on a day-to-day basis, but pretty catastrophic when we do, I suppose. Yes, you're quite right. In England and Wales, there are about 13,000 burns annually. The most common size is just about 1% of the total body surface area burned. So major burns in itself is quite rare. Unfortunately, burns tend to affect the 16 to 64-year-old age group. And as you can imagine, children under the age of four and the elderly at the other extreme tend to have uh, disproportionate morbidity and mortality. And I think one of the nice things about this podcast is that the care provided pre-hospitally can make a big difference to the area burned, to the depth of the burn, and also reducing morbidity and mortality. So I think that what you do as a first aider in the community is crucial for the burn patient. Fantastic. And I'm quite keen to dig into some of that physiology in due course. I guess starting from the beginning, for a basics responder getting a phone call from ambulance control about a burn patient, what sort of things do we need to be thinking about in terms of the initial approach to a scene where somebody has been burned? The most important thing is scene safety. And one of the mnemonic is called the SAFE approach. S is for shout for help. A is approach with care. F is free from danger and E is evaluate the ABCs. So I think safety in terms of the scene is important. Make sure that this is not just an isolated burn injury or is it associated with trauma. Unfortunately, burns is a distracting injury. I think if you see a major burn for for the first time, it can be quite overpowering emotionally. And the important thing is just to remember what is the mechanism of injury? How was this patient burned? And you've got to be really careful with road traffic accidents or collisions because it could be a high-speed crash or patient could have been ejected or there could be an explosion or working on an industrial site, elocution or jumping from a great height or somebody could be intoxicated, either the influence of drugs or alcohol. So it's really important to have a suspicion, even though it may be plainly obvious, that the problem is a burn. The second point is, from the first aider, 
response is to try and get as much a comprehensive history as you can from the patient if possible. And the mnemonic we use is AMPLE, which is A for allergies, M is for medication, P is for past medical and surgical history, L is for last meal eaten, the time, and E is for the events leading to the burn and the environment related to the injury. And then if you can document if the patient's tetanus status, that would be great, and document everything as soon as possible while still supporting, reassuring the patient, family, and the bystanders. That is basically the first responder's priority. Absolutely. It always seems like one of those jobs that you need four or five pairs of arms and at least two or three brains in order to, to try and get through all of that at once. Sure. Uh, I think a useful way is to have it written down as an aid memoir, so you can just write it down as you go along. Absolutely. Yes, my, my gloves end up covered in scribbled <laughs> things generally. Okay, so... We've made our, our safe approach and and started to assess the patient. And in the, the context of, of pre-hospital care, our sort of CABC is very much driven into the responders. What sort of additional things do we need to think about when we're looking at airways within the, the burns patient? Before we, we go to the airway, I just want to emphasize the first aid. There are four things. One is to stop the burning process. So if they are standing, get them to drop onto the ground and roll over so that the flames can be extinguished. Remove the clothing, especially in flames and skull burns. If they're stuck, leave them well alone and remove all jewellery. So that's the stopping the burning process, because that might be ongoing if you happen to get there early. The second is to cool the burn wound, but not the patient. We recommend cooling with running water at 12 degrees, flowing over the burn wound but not over the patient for a minimum of 20 minutes. And this can be done up to three hours from the time of the burn and this will reduce the depth and the area of the burn later. A caution, do not use ice or cold water because it just gives you a cold burn. And be careful of making the patient cold and hypothermic, especially in children who lose a lot of heat. And if you cool the burn, you also get pain relief. So that's the second, cooling the burn. The third is wound management. Cover the burn with a dry cloth, or if you have household cling film, the ones we use for sandwiches, etc., try and cover the area burnt loosely because you know that the burn wound is going to get endemitis later. And don't put any lotions or potions on the wound, just leave it alone. And the fourth is elevate the burnt part just to reduce the swelling. And if it's at all possible, if there are no other contraindications in a a head and neck burn, it's important that you sit them up because this will reduce the facial swelling which will become apparent in 24 hours. So anything you can do to minimize this effect in the community would be a great help. That's the first aid. That's brilliant and yes, definitely worth remembering and I'm keen to kind of come back and look at what's happening on a, on a microscopic level in a few moments. The other thing that struck me as you were talking there is I hadn't realized quite how much of an analgesic the cling film is. I've oh, seen very it's, few burns, it's, but it's, it's fantastic. It's just amazing. If you've got a major burn, especially with the, the deeper burn, where the pain is actually not the classical pain, it's actually nerve pain because the nerves under the skin have been annoyed and irritated. So they become really powerful. And if you have just air wafting over the burn area, it's exquisitely painful for the patient. So by putting cling film on, A, you remove that risk of air wafting over the wound and causing neuropathic pain, but B, 
because you've got cling film over the wound, it acts like a second skin. So any mechanical touching of the area of the burn is reduced. So cling film is my number one analgesia. Obviously, you're not going to put cling film over the face for obvious reasons, but generally speaking, cling film is brilliant because it reduces moisture, it provides pain relief, it allows inspection without having to undo dressings, and most importantly, it's comfortable for the patient. Okay, so yeah, I mean, that gives us a great rundown of, of first aid side of things. I'm going to pull you back and just unpick the, the Burns Airway because it's something that is at the forefront of folks' minds, particularly when you've got a significant surface area of burnt tissue. What sort of things yeah. do we need to be thinking about and what can go wrong, I guess? Well, airway management is critical because you've also got to make sure that the patient doesn't have cervical spine problems. You know, the patient could be involved in a blast, could be burnt, but could have been thrown and also got cervical spine injury. So the mechanism of the burn injury must be taken into account when you approach the airway. And in the management of the airway, you've got to exclude airway burns or an inhalational injury. Now, normally your upper airway is very good in controlling the amount of heat that goes into the lungs. For example, if you smoke a cigarette, you don't get burned because the smoke that a cigarette smoker inhales is actually cool by the time it gets to the lungs. So it's only when the upper airway is overwhelmed with heat, like in a closed room or enclosed space, does that become overwhelmed. And then you're going to get a swelling of the upper airway. The good news, it, it doesn't occur immediately. It takes a few hours. And if you are unlucky and the patient has got an inhalational injury, in other words, they've inhaled bits of uh, material into the low airway, they'll be coughing and choking, the most important thing is just to sit them up because that is the most comfortable position for a chest problem and let them expectorate, but at the same time, provide oxygen. That is the only thing I would recommend in the community. Don't try and instrument airway with any adjuncts unless you're qualified to do so because you can always trigger a laryngospasm and make a situation worse than you already have. So I wouldn't be too afraid of the airway in terms of upper airway obstruction occurring because it doesn't occur immediately. If you sit them up, uh, for the reasons I've explained earlier, it'll reduce the swelling in the head and neck, keep the patient calm, uh, give them the oxygen and transfer them without intervention. That would cover the majority of patients. Yeah, I guess it's that don't go poking at it and make a, a bad situation significantly yeah, worse. worse. In terms of our responders, our nuclear option is front of neck access, and I'm guessing yeah. that stands as being the nuclear option if you get to a point where you can't manage the airway by yes. any other means. I think the nuclear option, the i.e. the surgical airway, a cricothyroidotomy, is the golden standard. You have to remember, when we first started life support courses, we put a lot of emphasis on intubation. And unfortunately, the majority of us working in pre-hospital care don't really get that much experience in intubation. And you have to go back into hospitals for attachments to keep that skill up. And I think it was the military in about 20 years ago that changed the policy from intubation to the surgical airway. And having been brought up in the old-fashioned way to actually make the seismic change into a surgical airway was a huge step. But I've seen the advantages. I was in charge of the battle scores for the military 
for seven years. And the number of lives we saved as a result of doing a, a surgical airway speaks for itself. So yes, your nuclear option is surgical airway. And if you are experienced and licensed to do so within your professional protocols, then yes, it's a fantastic option. Okay, so moving through our, our sort of patient assessment ladder, we've talked about airway breathing-wise. We sort of touched on some of the inhalational problems, and, and I'm guessing there's not a huge amount more that we can do beyond oxygen therapy in pre-hospital environment. Is there anything else we need to touch on for breathing? I think oxygen using a non-breathing reservoir mask, anti-15 litres, trying to maintain your saturations between 94 to 98% is uh, crucial, and that's all that needs to be done. Do be careful with things like carbon monoxide poison or cyanide poisoning, because certainly with the cyanide, you've got the risk for the tender. But certainly carbon monoxide, given oxygen to breathe, just reduces the half-life. And so you can change a very awkward situation into something that's quite manageable. So oxygen for all patients, irrespective of their pre-burn status. And that's as outlined by the British Thoracic Society Guidelines for Emergency Oxygen Use in Adult Patients, published in 2008. So even if they've got that history of COPD, the burn status overrides that. And we're going to crack on and give them high flow. Correct. Fantastic. Okay, so moving onwards, we're going to hit circulation. And there's always questions that come up about cannulation in the burns patient and dealing with sort of widespread burns and and thinking about access. What are your thoughts in terms of getting access in these patients with widespread burn? If you can get a peripheral access in two attempts, that's fine. Just make sure that you don't have a burn proximal to where your IV access is going. The intraosseous route is the preferred choice if you fail to get an intravenous one at two attempts. But just remember, for a major burn, and I'm, I'm talking about a long transfer, I'm not talking about a transfer of one hour from scene of burn to hospital, then intraosseous, we recommend using two IOs just because of the flow rates involved. So that would be my tip, to try and keep peripherally Try and not make things worse, you know, is the golden rule in pre-hospital care. But go for the intraosseous routes, following the same rules, make sure that there is no reason why that site for the intraosseous needle, there are no contraindications. So that would be my recommendation. It's interesting you saying sort of transfer times at least over an hour. And I guess burns because they look so dramatic we assume that they're going to go spectacularly wrong very quickly but from what you're saying actually a lot of the time these are problems that we run into you know at 12 hours 24 hours and onwards in the patient journey rather than necessarily at the roadside correct i I think you're so right david to stress that point i think we have so little exposure to major burns so when it happens it's quite emotionally and professionally challenging there are a couple of things to back what you've said the first is when you calculate the TBSA, it is very difficult in pre-hospital care to distinguish between a superficial uh, compared to a, a more deeper burn. And the areas of redness are not included in the initial TBSA. So there is a tendency to overcalculate the TBSA in the pre-hospital environment. So it's not unusual for us in the burn center to get a message to say we've got a 40-year-old with a 50% burn. By the time they get to the local ED, it's dropped down to 10%. By the time they come to the burn center, it's down to 5%. You know, so we tend to overcalculate the TBSA 
initially. The second is that the fluid fluxes that occur in a major burn don't occur immediately. So in terms of resuscitation, it is not going to be a problem. In fact, here's a clinical pearl. If you've got somebody who is hypotensive within a couple of hours of the injury, look for another source of bleeding. So a burn itself is not going to be a problem in the first few hours. As you quite rightly pointed out, it's going to be around about the 24-hour mark when things are at its worst and the patient becomes hypotensive as a result of the inflammatory reaction. And therefore, to overcome this, you then apply whatever formula you want to apply for resuscitation. And certainly for personal experience, again, starting off in the military, I found it very difficult to get paramedics to do calculations. A, because first of all, the TBSA is an approximation. B, the weight is an approximation. And you can see that soon you're going to be over-calculating or over-resuscitating the patient. So in 2007, I published a paper called The Adult Burns Fluid Grid, which basically says, small man, small burn, small bag, big man, big burn, big bag. And essentially, you either put a 500 mil bag up or a liter, depending on the size of the patient and the estimated TBSA, and just leave it running in per hour until you get to hospital. And that tends to be so much easier because you're not having to worry about fluids. You're not going to make the situation worse because if you over-resuscitate, everything becomes more edematous. They're more likely to stay in hospital longer. They're more likely to get brain swelling. They're more likely to get pulmonary edema. They're more likely to get log tissues. So the adult burns grid, just a simple 500 or a liter bag, depending on your guess estimate at the scene. That's as simple as that, using Ringer lactate, preferably warmed. Fantastic. That definitely is advice after for my own heart in terms of keeping things simple at the roadside and, and not trying to remember all the complex calculations and formulas. I suspect you'll be yeah. uh, upsetting question setters at formal exams who seem to love asking Parkland's questions. Yeah, sure. I think we have to be really careful here. What I'm trying to do is not give information that is expected at an examination. I'm just trying to be pragmatic of what is safe on the roadside. That's, Absolutely. That's, that's the difference. Yeah. I guess we've bounced around it a couple of times, but it's probably an opportune moment to have a look at what's happening at the burn itself with a little bit more detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, most mm-hmm. folk will have had at least glancing familiarity with with the concept of grading or staging these burns and potentially at kind of zones of injury. Yeah. Uh, wonder if you could talk us through what's happening at a tissue level. Okay, so if you just imagine a burn like an archery board, you know, a center and followed by concentric circles. Uh, Jackson in 1953 published a paper on the zones of injury. The innermost zone is the zone of coagulation, and basically that's dead. That will be dead skin, and it's never, ever going to recover. Round it is a zone of stasis where the capillaries are just stunned and they're not moving. And then outside, uh, beyond that, is a zone of hyperemia, which is just basically a redness. We, we referred to this early on when we were talking about calculation of TBSA. A common mistake is including erythema in the calculations. Now, what is fascinating is that if you give good first aid, you decrease the zone of stasis, you get those capillaries moving, and therefore you reduce the 
TBSA burned, and more importantly, reduced the depth of the burn. So this is why a good first aid has a profound impact on what happens in their journey through intensive care and then into rehab. So just remember, what is burnt is burnt. What is static can be improved by just good first aid. And if you've got a major burn, say anything like 20% or above, then the whole body can be red because of the inflammatory response that goes on as a result of what's happening at the tissue level, as a result of all the inflammatory mediators. So yes, so to answer your question, we're trying to reduce the zone of stasis because the zone of hyperemia is going to resolve in itself. And if you reduce the zone of stasis, you reduce the TBSA and you also reduce the depth. So two fantastic things you can do for your patient in the community. It's really interesting. I'd always had it in my mind as being this sort of two-dimensional, as you say, like a, an archery target. But, yeah. but thinking about that depth also being involved, and actually, you know, it's almost more like a sort of spherical model in that the, the burn is going to become significantly more shallow with good treatment. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's a 3D problem. It's not 2D. We see the 2D when we're looking at our patients, but actually there's a 3D picture. I hope we, when we talk about chemical burns, we'll cover this topic again. Indeed. You know, the other thing that always strikes me is that actually all the fancy medicine that happens in ICU is arguably less important than the basics of just getting that burn cooled and that kind of first aid management, as you point out. Yes. Having worked in a burn centre for nearly 20 years, where we see the ITU ward and rehab phase, I'm convinced that a good first aider can make a huge difference. And this is why my interest in pre-hospital care started because I realized if a respondent in the community did his or her job well, the impact on outcome was amazing. And it just doesn't apply to burns, it applies to any emergency medicine or surgery. So yes, so pre-hospital care, if done well, has a huge impact. Also on cost of intensive care bed stay and all that kind of thing. So in terms of money as well, it, it's a winner. And that, I'm sure, will make the NHS bosses very happy. I hope so. Okay, so we've walked through airway, breathing and circulation. Disability is normally the point at which we start to think about analgesia. And we've yeah. talked about some of the basics already in terms of cooling the burn and potentially providing cling film as, as an analgesic. Where you've got significant area of burn, what are the adjuncts that we need to think about in that early resuscitative okay. phase? A couple of points about analgesia in any trauma or burn situation. Now... If you give good analgesia to a trauma or a burn patient following the CABCD, uh, you reduce by ninefold the incidence of PTSD in the rehab phase. So analgesia is not just good for humanitarian reasons or for the patient alone or for the person providing the analgesia, but it has a huge outcome on the recovery and reducing the incidence of PTSD. Now. In terms of what you shouldn't use, I, I want to get that out of the way quickly, is avoid non-steroidals because obviously it's going to have an impact on the kidney and also on wound healing. So the options are cling film dressing is my number one choice and opioid of your choice. I, I don't really mind what people use as long as they're familiar with it. My personal preference, so I'm talking now just from a personal viewpoint and not talking on behalf of the BBA or any other organization, is fentanyl. I just like fentanyl or ketamine depending on the situation. 
The third, and this is something which is relatively new in the UK, but very common in Australia, is the use of inhaled methoxyfluorine, the green whistle. The reason why I like it is because it's a PCA, it's, it works quickly, it's unlike nitrous oxide. When you stop using it, you don't get the return of the pain quickly because the methoxyfluorine actually provides analgesia for periods longer than its use. So those would be my three options, cling film, opioid of your choice, or ketamine, and methoxyfluorine. Fantastic. And it ties in nicely in that we are gradually rolling out methoxyfluorine across the basics responders in Scotland. Oh, brilliant. And, and a lot of our brilliant. responders will have access to an opioid of some shape or other. And from a PowerX point of view, obviously, that's going to be morphine. But the GPs have a little bit more in the way of wriggle room to, to choose something they're familiar with. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so we've got our analges patient. They've had their burn cooled. They're set up. The affected area is elevated. We've done a good systematic approach and optimize them as far as is possible. You mentioned hypothermia early on. I'm just going to touch back on that because we're sort of at E at this point. Why do yeah. we get concerned about hypothermia with a Burns patient? First of all, there are lots of things going on at the same time. If you're cooling your patient, you wet the clothing, etc. So the wound is initially very sterile. So if you cover it with cling film, or a clean sheet, whichever you have, provided you just don't use tight dressings or circumferential dressings, because otherwise you're going to get a tonic effect when the burn wound swells. Cover the patient and keep them warm. And the reason for that is if you cool, if a patient becomes hypothermic, and children are, are, and the elderly are particularly vulnerable to this, you become hypothermic, you shiver. And if you shiver, you're increasing your oxygen consumption, and it's not very pleasant. Now, if there is coexisting trauma, if the patient becomes hypothermic, the coagulation system doesn't work because coagulating factors work within a very tiny normothermic band. So cover the patient. A cling film does pr provide some warmth and it also keeps the wound moist. And consider evacuation to your nearest hospital as soon as possible because we know that hypothermia is independently associated with mortality. And therefore, any mitigation that you're going to do or have is going to help. And the other thing is, in a major burn, the patient becomes poikilothermic. Poikilothermic means fish-like. They take up the, the temperature of the environment. That is why burn centers are very hot places to work in. Because just like in neonatal units, these patients cannot control their temperature. And therefore, the surrounding temperature needs to be at a higher level because of the catabolic state the patient's going to be in as a result of the burn. So that's the temperature mitigation. It's certainly remarkable, first time going into a burns theatre and, and thinking like you've walked into a sauna. It's pretty spectacular. Yeah. The other thing I just want to touch on is antibiosis. And now we're kind of straying from, I guess, the initial roadside into some of the early hospital management. But for some of our more remote responders, actually, they're going to be at the roadside, essentially, for a number of hours, potentially. Is there a logic behind early antibiotic management in these patients? Speaking personally, because I'm really quite careful about making sure that uh, local guidelines are not dismissed, there is the initial burn wound is sterile. So if you can cover it with cling film and avoid secondary infection, that's the best thing you can do. There is very little place for routine empirical antibiotic therapy. This is just my personal view because we are running into problems with the with stewardship of antibiotic therapy because we're getting 
drug resistance. So antibiotics should not be given unless somebody from, from the burn center or telemedicine says otherwise. Uh, the most important thing here is to check for the tetanus status and cover the wound and prevent secondary infection. Brilliant. And I guess it goes back to what we were saying in terms of actually a lot of these complications are things that happen down the line in ITU and we just need to make sure that the, the basics are, are what's managed at the roadside. Correct. And I think you've hit the nail on the head because what people don't realize is that when you've got a major burn, one of the big problems is that your immune system, just like in major trauma, it takes a huge beating. And it's because of that immunosuppression as a result of the, the burn process, inflammatory process, do you get the susceptibility to infections. And then you've got the added problem. If you've given antibiotics and if it's not appropriate antibiotics, then you're going to get opportunistic infections and, and it just becomes a mess. So from a pre-hospital perspective, cover the wound as quickly as possible, prevent secondary infection, keep the patient as normal as possible with respect to the vital signs, so heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, saturations, urine output if indicated, and just deliver the best possible patient quality at the dose step at the ED. I am very aware we've not yet talked about chemical burns, and I, I definitely want to come back yep. to touch on those. But just before we leave the, the heat-based burns, special areas. So I guess here we're talking about face, hands, circumferential burns. Is there anything at the roadside that we need to do differently for these burns that are, I guess, high risk and high impact? It's really no different than what you're doing now, because the problems are going to be later on in the genesis of the burn journey. No, I, I don't think there's anything other than documenting the areas burnt. You mentioned the special areas. The genitalia is also crucial because it's a potentially dirty area, so secondary infection is a high risk. The only observation I would make, Dave, is to say, don't forget to examine the back. It is rather embarrassing when you've missed out an injury or a burn because the patient's lying on their back. So try and get a overall quick picture and on a, on a diagram, mark all the areas. So when you hand over in the ED, you can put in your pennies worth in about where you think are the problems. And quite often the first responder uh, has a better idea as to what's gone on. And this is one of the reasons why photographs, if done professionally, of the patient uh, and also of the scene can give a visual picture, a video rather than a Polaroid shot at any one given point. That's really useful. I guess quite a few of us are quite familiar with taking pictures to illustrate mechanism of injury, but actually video is, is that much more tangible in terms of conveying that information. Yes. There are lots of apps out there that try and estimate burn surface area and allow you to shade things in and do some of the calculations for you. Do you think they have much of a place? For the reasons I've given you earlier, where it's very difficult to distinguish the different depths of burn in the pre-hospital environment, I would say they have a limited choice because it takes several hours before the demarcation goes. So my point is that it depends whether you're doing a scoop and run or a stay and play, depending on the environment, depending on where you are. For example, if you're in the highlands and there may be a longer journey, then clearly you've got more time to draw it on a diagram or using one of the apps. Whichever, any evidence you can provide to the burn center is going to be useful, especially when they're doing retrospective audit of how they're performing with burns. Quite often, we don't have the data from pre-hospital care. 
And so it's a black box. So I think the importance of collecting data, vital signs in particular, and what interventions you're doing and at what speed, is probably more important than calculating the DBSA for the majority of occasions. That's really useful to know. Let's bite the bullets and head in the direction of chemical burns. If burns weren't scary enough, chemical burns are definitely things that put the fear into into the responder because it's a whole unknown, I guess. What are the basics of managing the chemical burn? Well, for the first thing to say that the chemical burn is actually quite common. I hadn't realized it because there are two main places. One that occurs in the household. And for this, the kitchen and storage places seem to be the main sources of problems. Or it can be as part of an industrial accident. So I think depending on where you work, it is a good idea to have a game plan as to what industry you've got in your area and what you're likely to go wrong. Now, the good news is that it's a strong acid or a strong alkali that will actually cause the problem. And the reason the damage is done is that the body's protein is denatured. And once that happens, it cannot recover. Now, acid burns are usually self-limiting. And do you remember when you mentioned about the 3D burn as opposed to the 2D? Well, the alkali tends to be more dangerous because it looks deceptively like a superficial burn, but underneath that top layer, it's continuously dissolving the tissue, just like a soap. It just dissolves everything. So an alkali is worse than an acid. And the most important thing is to copiously dilute with water as soon as possible. And how you do it in pre-hospital care fascinates me because I've tried with not much luck trying to work out how do you cool or irrigate a chemically contaminated wound at the same time as the vehicle's moving at the same time do you have enough water on board and how do you not actually transfer the contamination to the non-burnt area so it's really important to irrigate the wound as with much water as possible uh, without getting hypothermic you can use pH paper if you to verify the neutralization. But what you mustn't do is neutralize the alkali with an acid or an acid with an alkali because you just get more heat production as a result of the exothermic reaction. So don't worry about it. Just copiously wash with water, drinkable water, because you don't want contaminated water for the reasons we've just described. And really, the damage depends on the concentration, the quantity, how long it's in contact with the skin or mucosa, uh, the extent of tissue penetration. So anything to try and wash off the chemical body is crucial. The only caution I would say is make sure you yourself as a responder do not require PPE. And the second is all contaminated clothing should be stored in a protective container just for safety. Useful to kind of dispel some of the old wives' tales about trying to work out what it is and then selecting a, an antidote and pouring vinegar and all sorts on burns that really has completely gone out the window. And the mainstay is just, as you say, drinkable water in copious volume. Yeah, there's only one exception, Dave. The exception for water being used for irrigation of chemicals is when you're dealing with elemental sodium, potassium, magnesium, aluminium, lithium, because you can get an explosive exothermic reaction. So any elements. In those cases, you can use a Class D fire extinguisher, sand or mineral oil. So that's the whole of chemical burns. Water for the majority, except for elements when you would use a Class D fire extinguisher, sand or mineral oil. Fantastic.
Yeah, and as you say, I mean, the, the challenge here really is trying to get enough water onto the yeah. affected area without ending up with it dripping all over other areas and, and Correct. perhaps more importantly, dripping over ourselves. Correct. Yeah. And that's why I find it fascinating. I've never been able to get an answer from anyone. Is How do you, how do you irrigate something? I mean, if it's a small area, it's not a, an issue. For example, if you've got a chemical in the eye, use um, you know, irrigation from the bridge of the nose, washing it out. But it's also important that, that that chemical is not now spread to the rest of the face or the rest of the body. So that's these practical things that need to be borne in mind before you go out to an incident. So at least then you're prepared for that. Fantastic. So once we've done the sort of that first aid management, then I'm guessing everything else is going to be pretty similar in terms of managing that burned patient, uh, providing analgesia to them, and then getting the early transport to a specialist centre. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think the, the most important thing is actually providing that information, which is often missing, you know, the collection of vital signs, recording the interventions you're doing. That is the only way we're going to be able to retrospectively look at the data coming from pre-hospital care to then further fine-tune what we do at pre-hospital care. Now, I'm thinking the other aspect, uh, which we covered briefly, is I mean, I, I've just had a holiday up in the Highlands around Fort William. And you can imagine if there's a delay in transfer, it may be a few hours. The good news is that this is not going to be a big problem in terms of the airway swelling because it takes several hours. And the second is just make sure that the patient's comfortable. I think if I, if I had to say to somebody, if there's no contraction, please sit them up. It's so much more comfortable if you're sitting up, especially if you think about it, you're sitting up with your knees drawn up. It just makes it easier to cope rather than just lying flat on your back. So yeah, so those are the kind of things that you, you would do, just like you would like to be treated if the roles were reversed. Absolutely. We get sort of obsessed by the patients being laid out in the beautiful Leonardo da Vinci anatomic position. Yeah. But yeah. by and large, our patients do much better when they're sat up. True. Yeah. And I think that's a clinical pearl I think people should take home in a take home message. Fantastic. That's been a really useful run through and we've touched on some quite detailed areas there. But also, I think every time we go to something that is detailed and high end, actually, the answer as much as as anything else, is generally just good first aid care. Yes, I think you're so right. And good first aid care is going to make a huge difference to your patient's journey. So this is why I call it doing the first aid in style, you know, <laughs> knowing when to do something, and more importantly, knowing when not to do something. You know, I think there's a tendency to overdo things. If you keep it simple and just work it out logically, you know, and I think if you stop the burning process and cool the burn, I think you are well in, in and after that, it's just a little bit of fine tuning. Fantastic. It leads us nicely into our top tips. And as you know, we've been asking all of our presenters to give some takeaway points for responders. My top tip we've covered in some detail. My top three are one, take a safe approach. Two, stop the burning process. Three, cool the burn, but not the patient. Winston, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your passion as well. Fascinating to chat with you. And I think this is something that uh, responders will take away for those infrequent but very high stress jobs. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Dave, for inviting me to do this. Bye bye. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.